Teach me about the Great Lakes. Teach me about the Great Lakes. Welcome back to Teach Me About the Great Lakes, a twice-monthly podcast in which I, a Great Lakes novice, ask people who are smarter and harder working than I am to teach me all about the Great Lakes. My name is Stuart Carlton. I work with Illinois Indiana Sea Grant, and I'm joined today by absolutely nobody. That's right. Ah, what a sad day. Due to uh, hurricane-related stuff, I've had trouble getting everything scheduled. Lots of things are happening at the last minute. And so um, it's just me and our guest today, an intimate conversation one-on-one. Um, and for those who did reach out, incidentally, everything is fine with my family in the hurricane. They are without power. Uh, it will be cool when they get power, literally. Um, I would not like to be stuck in New Orleans in a house with no power, but uh, that's the choice you make. Um, so thank you to those of you who did ask. I appreciate that. Uh, let's see a couple of announcements before we get to our interview. Number one, don't forget about the Lakeys, right? We've had a number of Lakey nominations. This is our end of year award show that we are calling quite possibly not the least prestigious, uh, Great Lakes related awards ceremony podcast. And, uh, we want you to nominate things. We have all sorts of, you know, science communication of the year, um, science research of the year, Great Lakes related, of course. And, um, you know, sandwich of the year, donut of the year, the most important stuff, all the most important categories we have. So please go to bit com slash Lakeys21 to nominate things for the Lakeys. And I'll put a, a link in the show notes to that. Um, and with that, uh, normally I would feature a Lakey-nominated item right now, but we're just going to go quick and dirty today because there's a lot happening. So um, I encourage you to do a nomination instead. And uh, let's go straight to our guest. Here we go. Our guest today is uh, Jillian Farkas. She is the Great Lakes Piping Plover Coordinator. Oh, yes, an official wildlife biologist at the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Jillian, how are you today? I do it pretty good. Thanks for having me. Oh, thank you so much for coming on. So we are here today to talk about piping plovers. And so let's start with the basics for those like me who don't really know anything about them. I'm not much of a birder. So what is a piping plover? How would you like to describe a piping plover to those out there who are listening in the theater of the mind? Yeah, so a piping plover is a small shorebird um, that typically is, it's smaller than uh, a robin, but it's bigger than a chickadee. It's definitely smaller than one would expect for a shorebird. Um, They're kind of sand colored to blend in with their environment. And during the breeding season, which we see in the Great Lakes, they all have um, a dark band between their eyes and then kind of have a pronounced orange beak and orange kind of tinted legs as well as a, a band around their neck. And so a lot of folks sometimes get them confused with killdeer, which kind of exist everywhere a lot in urban environments, but they're still, they're kind of in the same genus. And so they're similar. They're both um, plovers in the plover family, but uh, killdeer tend to have a couple more stripes. They're a little bit louder and uh, have a bigger, bigger eye compared to piping plovers. But if you're on the Great Lakes view, We'll probably see both. So probably see both. So I'm looking at these a picture of these now, and they're cute, right? That's one thing you didn't say, but they're cute little birds. <laughs> they're very cute, uh, especially in person, especially when uh, the chicks are hatched and running around the beach. Everyone says that they're little cotton balls with toothpick legs, and you can't really go wrong. So as soon as you see them, your your heart kind of melts and they're adorable. So if you're able to go out and see them, I highly recommend it. Yeah. Okay. And so, uh, well, actually, so people do want to see them. So they spend the summer here before going south. Is that right? Correct. 
this all got started incidentally because I read an article about some Chicago uh, uh, plovers in the Chicago Tribune, which we'll talk a little bit more about later. But so this is like one sign that the summer is ending. You know, the kids are back in school. It's quieter home, which is nice. But the sad part is no more piping plovers, right? So when they migrate, I'm I'm curious about migrating birds. I don't know a lot about them. Like, do they go to the same place or kind of the general same region? How does that work? So our Great Lakes birds, for the most part, will go down to the Gulf of Mexico or the Carolinas, but occasionally we have um, a bird or two that will go down to the Bahamas or Cuba or even the Yucatan Peninsula in Mexico. We only have uh, 75 pairs in the Great Lakes, so we don't have a whole lot of Great Lakes birds, but what's exciting is so there's there's a couple different uh, distinct populations, and so there's a Great Plains population. We have the Great Lakes population, which is the smallest and the only one listed as endangered. And then there's the Atlantic Coast population. And so the Atlantic Coast population and the Great Lakes population will kind of overwinter in similar areas, but we can tell them apart because Great Lakes birds, for the most part, all of them are banded and they have a unique band, an orange flag that indicates that it's a a Great Lakes plover compared to an Atlantic Coast plover, uh, Atlantic Coast plover. And so we're able to get those reports from birders and different partners and collaborators from where we're seeing them. And so we've seen them at um, an island in South Carolina, a big stopover point or a big wintering site for us is Cumberland Island in Georgia. We have a lot of piping plovers that go there. Um, We have Tybee Island in Georgia, Outback Key in Florida, Dolphin Island in Alabama, uh, Monty, who is one of the Chicago plovers, is in Galveston in Texas, um, and his mate is in Florida. That's why it's always a great united story when they come back to Chicago. They're overwintering in different locations, but they're able to reunite back in Chicago. Um, so it's always fun to be able to track them and see where they end up. These are all my old stomping grounds. I got my master's at the University of Georgia, my PhD uh, at the University of Florida, and I've been to Dolphin Island, you know, all this stuff. So it's fun to hear that. Oh, you didn't see piping plovers when you were there. What were you doing? School? Come on. Uh, you know, I might have seen them. The thing is, a piping plover can <laughs> land on me and say, hello, I'm a piping plover. And I would not know, at least until until today. But so so I don't get that. So, uh, so they overwinter kind of disparately, but then they come back to the same place. Is that... I guess that makes sense. If they overwinter, if each individual bird overwinters at the same place and then comes back to Chicago or wherever, um, kind of the same place, is that how it works? So they'll have basically one place on the co- or on the south and one place up here on the Great Lakes? So Francie might be able to speak a little bit more to this, but typically they'll come back to the same breeding site, but it's not a guarantee. I would say maybe 85, 90% of the time they'll come back to the same, to the same spot, especially if they have success, but if they don't have success the previous year, then they might start exploring a a different area. So um, there's no guarantee that they're going to go back down to the same wintering area. I think it's just, if they're, they have a good, a good time there, the food's right. They can also jump around from site to site. I think one of our birds, I think is currently in Georgia but I think that he might head over to uh, the Yucatan. So typically we can just see him bounce around, but they'll, we, it's really great. I always get nervous when some of our, our key birds like Monty and Rose, if they don't come back to the spot. So I always keep my fingers crossed and, and uh, hope in, in late or April or early May that we, we see them come back. But. So you mentioned that these are endangered. That's actually sounds kind of challenging, right? Because the Great Lakes population is endangered, but the other isn't um, the Atlantic population. But the Great Lakes may disperse over to the Atlantic. Um, is that kind of a so they're listed under the Endangered Species Act, I assume. And so is that kind of a mess for like uh, regulators or policymakers or whoever on the, the coastal states trying to or developers, frankly? Um, you know, is that kind of a headache to deal with the two different populations in one geographic region? 
So when they're in the wintering grounds, it's kind of an odd predicament where the endangered Great Lakes piping plovers just kind of get classified as threatened. So they lose their endangered status in the winter, but they get it back um, in the summer up in the Great Lakes. So it really doesn't make, it's, it's a unique case for sure, but typically in the breeding season, we're not having overlap between the Atlantic coast or the Great Plains. And so it doesn't cause too many headaches. If they, I think up in, in the breeding range, we do have a few instances throughout the tenure of the recovery that we've had an occasional pair meet up our star-crossed lovers from Atlantic coast and a Great Lakes clover bird will come together and have, have a nest out of the blue. Um, that's very uncommon. Uh, that's funny, star-crossed lovers. So speaking of star-crossed lovers, we have Monty and Rose in Chicago. And, and so these are the big, as far as I can tell, the big celebrity plovers. And so, so how did they, how did this celebrity come to be? Why are they known exactly? So it's really exciting where Chicago didn't have piping plovers nesting there for over 50 years. And then in 2019, so we, they did have some, uh, at Waukegan, they've had that in the past, but Chicago itself, they didn't have a pair um, in over 50 years. So in 2019, when they they did nest, it was so amazing to get all of the support and all the dedication. There was thousands of volunteer hours um, in a season to watch and monitor these birds and just to make sure that they had um, the best, the best kind of opportunity for success. And it was just great because you don't often get, you don't think about an endangered bird in a downtown city. And so the fact that they're able to nest and survive and thrive really um, is just kind of a, a passion story, or you get to really get involved and get to know these, these birds and all the birds have their own distinct personality. And so it just makes it that much more sweet when they do succeed because you're putting all this time and effort into it and it's the underdog story they're not they're not necessarily supposed to succeed or they've had a rough go about it so when they do it just makes it um a cause for celebration yeah chicago is not exactly ideal plover habitat i I guess right well it is i mean they have uh, a lot of wide beaches that allow the piping plovers to nest and it's definitely unique or we kind of they pop up in places that you might not expect. We have a site in Michigan, which is one of the only, like one of two places, I think in the United States that has ORV um, capabilities on state property. And so they have a huge ORV dune complex at Silver Lake State Park. And we have piping plovers that nest there. And there you can hear ORVs and people going up and over dunes and yet somehow we're able to fledge piping clover chicks or that they they enjoy it so orvs are off-road vehicles right correct yeah which is super fun but not necessarily uh, uh the most environmentally friendly thing you can do correct yes that was actually a big moment for me. I remember as a kid, I used to really hate jet skis because, you know, especially back <laughs> then they were really dirty and they would pollute the water and all that and then I got on a jet ski and uh, it it refined my view of environmental issues, I think, is what I will say. So uh, I imagine the same is true with ORVs. So who gets to name these things? Well, Money and Rose, presumably their parents did not name them. Or if they did, I feel like the story would actually be a little different um, with the English-speaking birds. But so who gets to name these suckers or these uh, uh, beautiful, cute cotton balls on, on uh, uh, matchsticks or whatever? Yes. So it's... It kind of depends on the region. So and informally, so Fish and Wildlife Service itself, we do not name the birds. Um, We appreciate partners that want to name the birds. It makes it a little bit easier to refer to them. Um, 
but sometimes we have some internal names because each of the the birds get a unique band combination. And so sometimes it's a red, red, red band, or it's a, a blue, orange, blue band. And so then that's called Bob, or we'll call him Bob or her Bob. And, or if it's a little, a little, or a light blue band, so then we'll call it little Bob because it'll be a lowercase B. So they kind of have sometimes informal names that we're able to refer to them, or there's a Wisconsin bird with two red bands. And so they call her red because uh, two R's next to each other. So there's some kind of informal naming to it, but like with Chicago, they had um, brought together a kind of naming panel or just tried to, trying to reflect the, the community to try to represent the strengths of Chicago. And so we, we weren't involved in that, but we always love seeing what the community comes up with and, um, and seeing where those, those fledglings end up. I guess you worry, or maybe you don't, but do you worry about like anthropomorphizing a little too much or is it just in good fun, I guess? So it is a mix. And I think it, it depends on the wildlife biologist. So I am so grateful when people want to get involved and kind of name these things. And it is sad when we do lose a piping clover that gets so much um, support behind it. But I think that just highlights how important recovery is and what kind of obstacles we're coming up against. So it's unfortunate when we lose this bird that has this lovely name or um, that we've been watching for a while, but it just goes to show how hard it is to spend months breeding in the Great Lakes and traveling a thousand plus miles away to the wintering ground and trying to come back and uh, thrive and avoid predators and people and the stress. And so, um, so I guess there is, maybe it's not the best thing to anthropomorphize them, but it's, it helps us connect, connect with wildlife. I love it personally, but I understand why, <laughs> you know, it's hard, but no, you're right. Then it, 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 on the other side, when, when something happens, it, it, it can be kind of rough, I guess. Uh, but so you mentioned that, you know, there are obstacles and threats. And so you say there are about 75 breeding pairs. I think you said we had 74 breeding pairs this year. We had 72 technically breeding females. Some of them swapped partners if they lost a partner due to predation or, um, some other issue, but it's, it's more than what we had last year. We only had 64 pairs and are these counted by volunteers. How do you, how do you know the, these numbers anyway? We, it's a big effort. So that's why I really love this program where we'll have federal state partner partners, tribal partners. We have volunteers. We work with universities. We work with zoos. We work with just, um, e-bird observations. And so everyone's really coming together to try to monitor these birds. Um, so typically some of the sites like Sleeping Bear Dunes, they hire a small staff to monitor these birds because they have, they kind of are the stronghold for the population currently. They have 30 plus pairs there this season, um, which is almost half of what our whole population is. And so being able to get daily reports about the, the plovers or being able to put up an exposure, um, which is just kind of a metal frame that we put over the nest to try to discourage predators and try to protect the, the plovers and they're vulnerable and, and incubating. Um, so it's really a, a huge effort to, to go about, about this. And so with Chicago, we had a huge volunteer effort and as well as Ohio this year, we had an astounding effort to really watch these, these piping plovers. And they had two hour shifts between 6am and 10pm to just really have a full, full idea of what was going on. And, and so we get a lot of, a lot of information from those reports. Oh, that's great. And so what are the threats? So whenever I hear endangered species, I always assume it's a habitat issue. Um, is that the case here or are there other threats that are, are uh, of concern? 
the reason why we think some of the numbers got as low as they did is in the early 1900s, some folks would, in general with, with birds, they would, they would take them for their feathers, for decorations, so for hats and, and what have you. And so piping plovers are pretty dependable and going to the beach. Um, so they kind of were, were an easy target. So I think that, that, that historically there used to be 500 to 800 pairs and they're only nesting around the Great Lakes. And so they weren't super huge um, or there wasn't a ridiculous amount of pairs before um, they started declining. And so it, it just makes each pair that much more important. So between wanting to have birds in museums or having been killed for meat or for fancy feathers, we just kind of we lost a bunch in the beginning. And, and then once we had different legislation go through between like the Lacey Act, the Migratory Bird Birds Treaty Act, they kind of stopped piping clover loss by hunting. But like you were saying, there's just been continued habitat loss, especially after um, the wars, people were building uh, a lot along the coast and just getting um, hardened beach development, which made it harder for piping plovers to have habitat to nest. So we got down to about a historic low, I think of 17 pairs at the time of listing. And we've just been slowly but surely moving the needle towards recovery. Yeah. When was when was 17 pairs? When was it listed, I guess? It was listed in 1986. Okay. So since then, 17 to 75, I don't know, what's that, about five times as much? A little less than that. So we're getting there, I guess. Uh, but And the trajectory, you said, is 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 upward? Yeah, it's definitely increasing. And it just, it just depends with most wildlife trends, the population can fluctuate due to environmental conditions in a given year. So last year, we didn't have as many, but that also may have been um, due to the pandemic. We didn't always get our, like our people out there, our Canadian partners weren't able to get out to the beach until June. And a lot of the nesting takes place before June to be able to put out those exposures. And so, yeah, so there's a lot, the error bars on the count last year or in 2020 a bit higher. How about this year? Was it, was a little better, I guess, because of vaccines and stuff, hopefully? Well, we were just able to get, uh, yeah, I think vaccines helped. We kind of knew (laughs) what to expect or how we were able to do housing for some of these sites and uh, different capacities and, and so we kind of knew a little bit about, I guess, what we were doing. And, and this year, I think also what contributed to our success is we had lower lake levels for the first time in the past couple of years. I think that that allowed for um, us to have less washouts, us to have more habitat available. Um, so it was really great to see. Excellent. That's, I never thought about how water levels can affect that. We've done a couple uh, shows on water level stuff, and I'll put links to those in the show notes. But uh yeah, that's really interesting. Oh, and you can find the show notes at uh, teachmeaboutthegreatlakes.com slash 39, the number 39, because this is episode 39. So I'm already in love with piping plovers. I did not know they existed last week, but now I'm they're cute. Uh, they've got adorable names, some of them, uh, but many out there still to be named. And uh, it's it's like a good story. So, so if I want to go help, or if our listeners want to go help with piping plovers, what's the best thing they can do? Is it you know, working on hardened shoreline issues? Is it helping with these counts? Is it voting? Well, don't tell people how to vote. We both work for the government. Um, but uh, what what is the uh, what is the deal? How, how can people best help? So I think it's really great. You don't have to be a biologist to be involved with science. There's so many different citizen science apps or reporting it to our Great Lakes Piping Clover website or on eBird. We'll typically start to see it so we can start to see where are piping clovers in in April? Are they coming and kind of when to expect different nesting? But but in general, when they're they're here breeding, you know, people in wildlife can can share the beach. And as long as you're kind of keeping your distance, you can still walk and fish and kayak and just enjoy being a beachgoer. Um, but just respecting, I guess, the space or sharing the shore is kind of what we we really try to to emphasize. And, and a lot of times people 
want their pets to enjoy the beach, but sometimes dogs and other animals can go after birds or harass birds or cause stress. So we we appreciate when folks have their dogs on leash at beaches, especially where piping plovers are occurring. And then just in general, by reducing your food waste, I guess that you leave at the beach because that can attract other predators like mesopredators, like raccoons or possums that can target piping plover nests. And so um, we just, so if you can minimize your trash, that's also great. And just supporting wildlife conservation and encouraging your neighbors and friends just to also appreciate piping plovers. They're easy to fall in love with, have a picture on your phone, say this amazing thing. And if you ever see monitors at the beach, we're typically more than happy to show you in our scope. Like this is what we're looking at. This is, an, this is why it's special. It's so rare to be able to have an endangered bird in your backyard and just being able to share that with people and the excitement. It's always, um, it's rewarding. That's really wonderful. Well, this is uh, fascinating information, and I really appreciate you sharing it with us. But that's actually not why we invited you here on Teach Me About the Great Lakes today. <laughs> the reason we invited you to teach me about the La- uh, teach me about the Great Lakes uh, need more coffee is to ask you two questions. The first of which is this: If you could choose to have a great donut for breakfast or a great sandwich for lunch, which one would you choose? Mm, I knew that there was a, a secret reason I was invited on this podcast. Uh, I would definitely choose a donut. And so there's a donut place in Lansing called Strange Matter. It's technically Strange Matter Coffee. If you need to look at some good donut pictures, I recommend looking at their Instagram, but they are phenomenal. And I have to stop myself from going there every day. <laughs> so when I go there, right, normally our next question is where should I go? But you being a go-getter, have already given me that information. So when I go to Strange Matter Coffee, I'm going to get the coffee, obviously. Perfect. What donuts should I get? So this might be controversial, controversial, good, good. but I love their lemon lavender donut. Lemon lavender. It's just like a nice yoga day in your mouth. It's just relaxing and you just can't go wrong. But some people are saying lavender tastes like soap. I don't want to be associated with those people, but I really enjoy that. <laughs> Yoga day in your mouth. There we go. Lemon lavender. That's I'm, I'm, I'm in, I'm in. I don't know when I'll be in Lansing next, but uh, I, I will. And so the second question, this is actually a new version. We change up our second question every now and again, when I get bored with the old version. Okay. And so you are the first person uh, to, so you've got, it's a blue, blue ocean, wide open. Blue Great Lakes, I think actually not oceans. Gonna... That's yeah. right. It's blue Lake. Good. Such a solid point. <laughs> Would you like to host the show? I feel like maybe we'd be better off. Okay, good. Uh, (laughs) uh, Is there a special place in the Great Lakes? Like that, what's a special place that you know in the Great Lakes you hold dear to your heart that you like to share with our audience? So I know I should probably say a piping plover spot and there's so many great places. Sleeping Bear is always a, a treasure, but I really enjoy the Upper Peninsula and in the Porcupine Mountains that kind of butts right up against Lake Superior, especially in the fall. It's just so peaceful and there's so many different kind of hiking localities and you just get a great view of the water. I just don't think you can go wrong really anywhere along the Great Lakes, but that just is a special, special place in my heart. There we go. That sounds beautiful. I'll have to check it out next time I'm up on the UP. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, uh, Jillian Farkas, uh, Fish and Wildlife Biologist with U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and of course, the Great Lakes Piping Plover Coordinator. Uh, Where can people go to find out more about the work that you do, piping plovers and, and so on? So we have uh, a website called greatlakespipingplover.org. So pretty uh, easy to remember, but also if you want to look at our Fish and Wildlife Service website, you can look at fishandwildfws.gov. 
slash Midwest slash East Lansing slash TE slash PIPL for Pipple. So super rolls off the tongue, easy to remember. But That's what uh, the show notes are for. It's fine. <laughs> so uh, both both of those places, you can you can learn a lot more about piping clovers and how to help help conserve them. Ah, uh, that is perfect. Well, uh, Jillian Farkas, thank you so much for coming on and teaching us all about the Great Lakes. Thanks for having me. So I'd never heard of piping plovers, and I was glad to hear about them because they are cute. They do look like little killdeer, uh, and it's an interesting story. Hopefully, we'll see those numbers continue to go up. And uh, that's going to do it for us this week. Make sure that you do the likes and the subscribes. I haven't asked you to do that in a while. Hey, could you leave a review? Maybe leave a review uh, if you want to leave a five-star review. If you want to leave a, a lower-star review, that is your right, but I recommend you do a different um, uh, podcast. Do that for a different podcast rather than this one, uh, but we'll see. Anyway, Teach Me About the Great Lakes is brought to you by the fine people at Illinois Indiana Sea Grant. We encourage you to check out the great work that we do at iicgrant.org and also at Grant on Facebook, Twitter, all your different social medias. Uh, Teach Me About the Great Lakes is produced by Hope Charters, Carolyn Foley, Megan Gunn, and Reedy Miles. The increasingly busy Ethan Shitty is our associate producer and our fixer. Our super fun podcast artwork is by Joel Davenport. Joel, we're missing you. I hope you're coming back soon. The show is edited by the awesome Quinn Rose, and I encourage you to check out her work at aspiringrobot.com. If you have a question or a comment about the show, send us an email. Teach me about the Great Lakes at gmail.com. Or, you know, leave a message on our hotline. That is 765-496-IISG for Illinois, Indiana Sea Grant. I think that's 4474. You can also follow us on the show on Twitter at uh, Teach Great Lakes. And so thank you so much for listening. And of course, keep grading those lakes. <laughs>